Hi, my name is Alan. I am the producer of the Courage to Lead interview series. I grew up in Australia, but my ancestors were first fleeters. I've learnt that this land is and always will be land cared for by the oldest Indigenous culture in the world, and that that land is and always will be Aboriginal land. Their culture is all about storytelling. So today I acknowledge the Darak people where this podcast is recorded and we extend our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I truly hope you enjoy today's story, which is someone's individual journey on how they traverse the challenges and the joys of becoming a leader. Welcome to the next guest on the Courage to Lead interview series, Fleur Hazelwood. What are your thoughts on prioritising wellbeing at work? Can stress and burnout really be an acceptable price for success? It's time to challenge the notion that mistreatment and bullying in the workplace are acceptable. Let's advocate for a culture of respect, support and psychological safety and stand up, make a difference and be the change we wish to see. This is what this interview is all about. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here we go. One, two, three, we're started. Welcome to the, the Courage to Lead interview series. Our next guest and someone I've been um, doing a fair bit of rescheduling because of how busy she is with all of her book launches and other activities. Our next guest is Fleur Hazelwood, um, the author of two amazing books. Uh, the first one being uh, Resilience Recipes, which won the 2022 Australian Business Awards for health and well-being and a finalist for the book of the year that year and then in this year 2023 she's published another book um, which was in high demand leading with well-being so and I've just I've read that in preparation for this interview so well done to you thank you very much Alan I'm looking forward to our conversation yes all right so I your um Chloe your assistant actually asked me is there any preparation um that you needed to do so I told her no but there is two questions that every guest gets. So if you've already done your research, you know what they are. If you haven't done the research, this, these are cold questions. So the first question is, what was your first true ever experience of leadership? And it can be as a five-year-old or it can be yesterday or anywhere in between. And, and why? My most memorable, I'll go to my most memorable experience of leadership I think um, in terms of I think being most most pertinent for for our conversation and particularly in rela relation to obviously having the courage to lead as well as um, you know having a background in uh, with you know resilience and also thinking about our, our current economic uncertainty and what's going on in the climate at the moment. So I was the CEO of a textile company when the global financial crisis hit and one of the things about textiles and having products to sell is that it was very very obvious when there were orders and products to be packed in our factory and, it, and then it was extremely obvious when orders and so forth started getting cancelled by all the major retailers that were worried about the the global financial crisis and so yeah. I had a, a long line of people outside my office concerned about you know their jobs and work and what did this mean and what did this look like and and so forth and so for me um 
true test of courage was how do I balance both the business commercial requirements but also make sure that people are safe and understand you know where where we're at what the company needs to do and what that looks like in terms of terms of job prospects mm. and so um I was I had the idea of asking everyone to reduce a little bit of work so that we could manage the financials and make sure that we didn't need to do any job cuts or redundancies. Yep. The legal advice was not to do that yep. because if I had one single person that didn't agree to voluntarily doing this, it could trigger a round of redundancies that the business actually couldn't afford. Yeah. But I actually believed that if you do the right thing by people and show that you are trying to do the best by people, then you can actually manage both the economics as well as the the well-being of of people and so I had an extremely stressful shaky anxious presentation where I was standing on the tabletop of the canteen with the sea of faces around me putting putting to them the prospect of if we all reduce our work by 20 percent then we can all have some work and um, I was shaking like a leaf. The legal yeah. advisor told me not to do this. And I just went, you know what? This is not only the the right thing to do, but it's also an important thing to do. Yeah. So l- luckily for me, the um, the response, well, actually the initial response that came back was, Fleur, we absolutely trust that you have got our best interests at heart. But I had a number of different um, nationalities and varying degrees of English around the factory. And they came back and said, we don't actually really understand what it is that you're asking us to do, but if you need us to sign this paper, then we will will sign this paper. And so every single person, and one of the commitments I made to them was, is that, you know, I won't sugarcoat what's going on and I'll make sure that, you know, every single week we're catching up and we're talking about what the economic environment looks like and what that means in terms of work for this week and work work moving forward. And so the courage was around going against yes. what the current business trend was at the time. So during the global financial crisis, most companies responded by cutting jobs almost immediately. Mm. And I was a little bit like that, you know, loaned lighthouse, yeah. on the, you know, on, on, on the shores of a very rocky and choppy choppy coastline that, that was holding out to do the right thing. But I guess what I would like to add to with that though is that the company did get through the global financial crisis we did keep all of our um all of our jobs and while our overall sales um were lower during that particular period of time we increased our market share and we managed a really respectable profit so i have a very very strong belief that doing the right thing by people is also the right thing by business well done I kind of share that with you as well. Um, but that's a really great personal example of that story, actually. So, yeah, that's well done to you. Um, that's not in any of your books, is it? I haven't read that in a book. No, not not the full story. There's like snippets, but no, I haven't, yeah, have, have, yeah. haven't, haven't written, written that, that one yet. No, that's mm. a really good story. And it's really um, emphasises um, do the right thing. It really isn't it. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's... Um, it does, one of the other guests I had on the show says, um, you know, the ends don't justify the means. You, you know, you need to you need to be able to sleep with yourself throughout the means to 
to get to the end. Yes, yeah, so oh, that's that's, that's that's really good. All right. Oh God, you've um, you've got five stars for that one. So <laughs> no no pressure for the next one. Good stuff. Excellent. <laughs> what um what the second question that every guest gets is, what is something about Fleur that absolutely no one knows? Ooh. The last guest said that she jumped out of a plane at 16, solo. <laughs> well, I've jumped out of a plane, but not solo. Mm -hmm. It was tandem and I loved it so much that um, I would like to actually learn to, to do a, a solo jump. But I guess in relation to that solo jump, something that um, not many people know about and I think you know, a, a little bit, little bit of fun as well is is that um, in the lead up to getting into the plane. So of course everyone has an instructor with them when you don't have a license to jump out of planes. Planes on your own. Yeah. All the instructors were doing their best to work out people's levels of like you know fear around around jumping out of jumping out of out of a plane. And I didn't realise this at the time, but that determined the order that people got loaded into the plane and then jumped yeah. out. So yeah. the more scared you were, the, the the closer you got to to the door, and the more likely you were to get a little bit of help in terms of terms of terms of pushing you out of the plane yeah. anyway I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie so I was actually really looking forward to this mm. and um, so I was getting really irritated with the instructor going how many times do I have to tell you I'm not nervous I'm actually really excited about doing this yeah. Yeah. so needless to say I ended up being put at the very very back of the plane oh. and be and being and being the last person yeah. know, invited to invited to jump and so on our way through, I was like speaking with some some of the other jumpers in various states of like stress, exhaustion, yes. anticipation, all the all this nervous um, energy that that was going on. And uh, I struck up a conversation and a friendship with a, a, a tourist, um, Eric, who had literally come to come to China on his own and was jumping out of a plane on his own. Yeah. And um, by the time he got on the plane, he wasn't too far, seated too far from me, but he was absolutely sweating and shaking, yeah. shaking, shaking yeah. like a leaf. And um, and so I said to Eric, I just leaned over and I said, oh, you know, Eric, I can help you to sort of like, you know, calm and regulate your nervous system, you know, a little bit. Stop stop thinking about what you're doing and let's just focus on breathing. And so I took him through some some breathing exercises and I'm going, okay, so move your breath from your chest down to your, down, down deeper into your belly. It'll take this out of your sympathetic nervous system like freak out that you're having at the moment provide you with some calm and I and I, I talked him through one and then I was counting for him so like one two three four in and then my um instructor tapped me on the shoulder and he said Fleur look at the rest of the plane and I looked up and everybody else had been taking um oh, the yeah. instruction yeah. that I've been giving to to Eric and so I'd actually calmed down the the whole whole plane and everyone was doing doing breathing exercises with me before before they jumped well, that's they're two excellent stories, and they're um like this interview essentially is all about you and how do you get made and where does it all come from, um, and you just kind of gave a pretty good introduction about who you were. You know, this these would have been that that experience probably is pre pre authorship and pre oh, pre yeah. uh, pre probably probably pre your business really. So so let's go into what you actually do, and let's go into how does Fleur Hazelwood, is that how you say it, Hazelwood? Yep, we pronounce Hazelwood, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
because I don't want to be saying it wrong. How does Fleur Hazelwood get get built essentially? Where does where does she come from, and how does she end up? You know, your end goal is is the author of two amazing books and the the founder of the Blueberry Institute that you're sitting in right now, which you've only just, from what I can gather from your mum and dad, that you you know you worked your um yourself to the ground to actually achieve your your own business um, unit in a pretty wonderful part of Sydney. So so how does all this happen? And you, I'm in your hands, really, and I'll, if you sugarcoat things, I'll ra- chase you down a rabbit warren to trying to try and get there and we'll find out some other stories. But, um, and you can take us to the start wherever you want to start, like at school or, or when you leave school or you take us where you want to take us. Thanks, Alan. So... I'm going to start with, I guess, what um, what I stand for, which is very much the foundations and pillars that I've built for the Blueberry Institute. And I think then I'll go back into my my history because it'll make a little bit more sense around, you know, how how I got to this and why why it's so important. So I fundamentally believe that we can be both healthy as well as having high performance. And we're in this working paradigm, and we have been for quite some time now, we're getting getting on close to to 15 years, where stress and burnout seem to be not only common but accepted prices for working hard and for high ambition and doing well and, and getting business results. And part of what I really, really care about is shining the light that actually it's not acceptable to burn people out. It's not acceptable to be be treating people poorly and it's not acceptable to, I guess, sacrifice our well-being at the expense of, of I guess, you know, our careers, our business, our achievements and, and, and what we do. So with my example of, I guess, that, you know, courage to lead moment where I really did buck the trend and say, hey, you can do the right thing about people as well as deliver business results is actually a really pivotal moment in my upbringing that gives me the conviction and not just the skills that this is the way that we can do things. Yeah. And so very much around how do we put the well-being back into to work? And um, it comes from the fact, I guess, that my own career, my own career trajectory in terms of getting here, I wasn't great at stress. I wasn't yep. great at resilience. I am an absolute expert in personal burnout. Yeah, and yeah. so have learned the the hard way how to to put myself back together again, but also to put myself back to, to together again in a way that um, supports both my health as well as my own high achievement drive. Mm-hmm. So okay. my early... Um, I guess in terms of um, we talk about some some of my early childhood um, influences, um, I was, oh, goodness, what age? I think between, it was between the ages of five and 18. Yep. I went to 10 different schools across four different countries and wow. the average length of time in any one school was 12 months. And so as a young person and as a child, I spent a lot of time feeling isolated, being the odd one out, 
having the wrong accent, not having done the right work, um, not understanding the in-jokes, yeah. being behind on where the different curriculums were, standing out as somebody different in the schoolyard. Yeah. In the early days in a couple of schools, that was a benefit. But as I got older, it was uh, as um, people care more about peer groups and being the same thing, it was, you know, so- something that, that that wasn't great. Yeah, yeah. And so I learned at a very early age, I guess some of those like hypervigilant psychological safety kind of, you know, skills around looking out for myself and being able to read the room and see what's going on and be able to to bend and, and flex and 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 to, and to go with that. Yeah. But I do have to say I've I've got quite a as part of my um you know part of part of my background and my own DNA makeup. Um, you know, I do have a long, you know, long, long-standing anxiety that you know that I manage, and you know that that's that's come from it as a as as a bit of a part of it. Yeah. But I've also um, always been very strong around and very convicted, I guess, when it comes to you know integrity and what that looks like and the way that you should and shouldn't treat people. Mm-hmm. And so part of, um, also particularly part of my career journey was as a young um, female on a type A career trajectory path, I spent a lot of my early years in work not being treated well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've got a very strong sense of, I guess, you know, social social justice when it comes to that. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, where, where my courage, I guess, you know, taps in. And obviously, you know, the theme theme for this particular podcast is I've been forced to stand up for myself in some pretty horrendous circumstances that so someone should not have to face. Mm. And now have very much not only the the courage, but also the skills and confidence to to start advocating and and, and supporting for supporting others. Yeah. That's a good um it's a really <clears throat> I noticed that in in this the latest book you're um, leading well-being. There's a there's a reference to to an experience that you had, uh, it's probably, which we might go into a bit deeper today. But um, I find it's interesting that you had to develop those skills. You've you're in a type A career and a young young female who's not treated well, and you and you've developed your own social justice stuff. So so you be you can help other people in this space and in so it's um uh, you you take us where you want to take us now so because it's you kind of set the scene it hasn't been it hasn't it has it's like a lot of people such as yourself that end up having this successful trajectory it hasn't been without challenges it hasn't been without um your own personal demons what's the story how do how do we get there a big part of my journey has very much been around, I guess, face, facing my demons. So anxiety being one, burnout being another, um, being in across various organisations where I've at different times been bullied or undermined by various leaders and leaders and leaders and managers. And so, I've really learned via almost like that, you know, baptism by fire. Um, skills and, and strategies to be able to initially it was to protect myself but um further down the track it was to to change that 
trajectory. So what mm. is it that I need to do to communicate with more courage, to be more convicted in what I'm saying, to set stronger boundaries, to be clear around what ex- what is acceptable and what's not. But also a big part of my last 15 years has also been learning better resilience, stress management and, and health skills to manage, I guess, you know, my mental health, not just my mental health, but also my emotional, my, my physical health in a way that's going to enable me to lead, I guess, what I'm what I'm what I'm training and, and coaching um, people in, but also enable me to to um, really stand in integrity and say you can have both health and high performance. And so a big part of my healing journey and um, where where I think a lot of my current centering and confidence and calm comes from was actually going outside of what we would classify as I think mainstream western education and delving a little bit more into some of those those eastern philosophies Mm. so from a western education perspective whenever I've been faced with something that I haven't been unsure about I've gone and, and learned it so I have a master's in coaching psychology I have a general management certificate um, I'm now a mental health first aid instructor, so there's mental health first aid training. So I'm very big on, or I've got a very strong driver around not just accepting something that happens, but working out how how do I overcome this and also how do I do this better, but mm. then also educate myself to support others so that they're not experiencing some of these things as well. But my most um, pivotal, the most pivotal part of, of my um, yeah, calm and calm, calm and confidence, and what I'm I'm sharing with people now comes very much from my yoga teacher training journey. So, okay, um, going back to the the example of of you know teaching teaching a plane full of people um, grieving exercises to help them reduce their their stress temperature when they're about to you know jump out of a plane at 30,000 30, feet for example um, came from yoga therapy teacher mm. training where I've learned strategies to self-regulate but also strategies to be able to support guide and train other people to to self-regulate yeah when um, I've gone through periods of you know high stress and I've noticed, different things um, going on in my body. I think most people can relate to, you know, when you're feeling stressed, you get tension in your neck or, you know, you might wake up in in the morning and you've slept funny and you've got, Mm. you know, pains or pins and needles or whatever. So I've learned a lot of diagnostic tools to be able to recognise early what the signs of stress are, how they reside in your body and different things that you can do yourself to ensure that you are staying in in a good position regardless of what's going on in the world around you. Hmm. That's good. That's really, uh, it's, uh, and I can see like the second part of your um, well-being, leading well-being kind of talks about some of that stuff you just touched on then. So it's interesting to know where it come from. So so you're still just dancing around the edges. Um, uh, do you want to start, like you just gave some examples about how you were, I think you, how you were bullied. Um, yeah, bullied, undermined, and burnout. So, where where do you want to start this story? Do you want to start how you how you dealt with the pressures in the in the in the schoolyard, or 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 
when does when does this high powered uh, young female um, type A career path happen, and you realise that you're on the wrong ship, kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> my wife has a saying: you you think you're on you think you're on the Australian ship, and then you look up and you t the flag, and it's actually a black pirate flag, and you realise you're on the wrong ship and you're going the wrong direction. So, where do you want to start? Because you've kind of given us some the so uh, so in the, in, the in, the, in, the, in the schoolyard, I learned that the best way to survive was by blending, blending, blending in. So at the ripe old age of nine, we'd moved to Canterbury, Kent, in the in the UK, and I think it was my first day of school. So I started um, in the middle of of a term. So all the kids there already had friends and well developed routines and teachers and subjects and, and so forth. So mm. I rocked up as this very standout new girl with a different with a different accent mm. in even though we tend to think that Western cultures are pretty similar, there are some some significant significant differences. And so um my first, I think, recess break, I walked out of school, I walked, you know, out outside of the the um the building and into the schoolyard and went, okay, so how am I going to make uh, friends um, here? And I hadn't walked four steps into the playground but before I got accosted by the equivalent of the grade leader or the main grade um, bully and mm. he bailed me up in the corner of the, the schoolyard and a, um, a ring of um, my new classmates were like formed around us mm. and he comes and he push, puts his finger in my chest and he goes, hey, so new girl, tell me, are you a mod or a rocker? Mm. I had absolutely no idea what a mod or a rocker was, yeah. but I knew it was a life-defining question. So yeah. whatever I answered or however I answered would make the difference as to whether I had friends or not or got yeah. picked on or fit in. So I did what any self-respecting nine-year-old would do, and I said, what are you? Mm. And he said, I'm a mod. And I went, awesome, I'm a mod too. <laughs> and it basically meant for the rest of that, that that school year I had friends and I was accepted. Wow. So okay. that, work, that, work, that works when you're a child, but when you sort of like, you know, start working, you know, working up and, and um you know, making progress in, in terms of your career, well, especially for me um, anyway, um, it was pretty hard to sort of like blend in and be the equivalent of a mod when with my first job, for example, the year that I started, it was their first ever graduate trainee program. I was the first female that been put into um, a management trainee program. I was the first and only female in the sales team in this particular state. Yeah. And I was also one of the first people with a degree to be hired in what was traditionally an area which was considered to be quite, quite safe. Yeah. And so the option of saying, hey, I'm a mod too, or hey, I'm just like you, or, mm. you know, hey, you don't need to pick on me or bully me, um, wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter what I said. Um, I was treated with a suspicion and there was a vested interest in many of the old guard that had been there for 10, 15, 20, 30 years 
that because this was first and it was potentially the portent of things to come and it was in their best interest to run this person off because yeah. it would safe safeguard safeguard their roles. Yeah, yeah. And um so I was um I was ostracized, I was ridiculed publicly in meetings. Um my manager my direct manager, who was supposed to obviously be responsible for my success, yeah. was directly threatened and was concerned that I would get the next promotion that that he wanted. And so he would withhold information from me. He would give me wrong information. Um, I'd turn up to meetings that didn't exist. I missed meetings that were told, wow. that, were told that would be compulsory um, and critical. Um, I had people planting things on me and blaming me for things like thefts and accidents. So there are a whole number, a whole heap of um, every yeah everyday bullying, oppressive, and um, you know and and un unsafe unsafe behaviours. So how and, old are you then? How how old are you? Like you've just come out of uni. So is, what what did you do at university? 20, I was twenty. Um, oh, 20 years old. I did. I did. A, did a commerce degree at university, and um, in the graduate trainee program, it was one of those those programs where they um, rotated you around different everyday jobs in different everyday kinds of departments. And so I was put into to the sales team. So mm. one of the one of the little known <clears throat> facts about me is I have a I have a um, I have a light truck license because <laughs> part part of that first um, six months involved um, driving a snack food um, truck and calling on selling selling products to um, milk bars and convenience stores and small small grocery yes. stores. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So how um, you're twenty years old. Have you got any brothers or sisters at this stage? Um, I've got two. I've got two younger brothers, and they're significantly younger. And okay. at that stage as well, um, my family had moved up to to New South Wales, and I'd stayed in Melbourne to to finish uni. So, not only was I facing this with my first job, I was facing this on my own. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's all all the. So I had to figure in, it out in, for myself. Yeah, yeah. All the indicators. Um, your support's not there. Uh, you're in a new job, which sounds like cutting edge for a lot of people in the university field um, at that time in the, in this space that you're in. So to just talk us through what 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 was one of the worst days of of that job. It sounds like it was every day. So I was yeah, going to say <laughs> it, it, it. It actually it actually was it actually was most days. Yeah. Um, but um, one of the one of the one of the worst days of the job, and this is this is this is interesting because um, I guess this this takes it to a, to another another level um, again, is that um, there are a lot of, I guess particularly in those days, and particularly when you're in a role where you're out on, I guess you know what's described as out on the road, so so you're you're on your own, and um, and when I say you're 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 on your own usually you spend the day on your own visiting mm. customers and you, you drive driving between stores and um i had a phone call um from my state manager that said um fleur do you have an accident that you need to report to us mm. and i went uh no i've got no idea what you are talking yeah. about yeah and uh so apparently someone who knew 
sort of like the, the ins and outs and the timings and so forth of, you know, when people were going in and out to refill, restock, um, you know, trucks and meetings and all the rest of it, had called into the state manager with the number plate of my um, truck and advised that um, I'd caught, not only had I caused an accident which ran his daughter off the road and smashed her car, but witnesses apparently had chased me in cars up the road and I had refused to acknowledge or stop what I did. Wow. And this is all totally bogus. All totally bogus. The And this is really interesting because the only thing that I had going for me in this story was when he was levelling the accusations, he was talking about he and the bloke driving the truck. Okay, wow. But even though um, it was completely bogus, there was still a formal investigation process in the company, then a formal investigation process with the police, because of course he'd gone and yeah, he'd yeah. gone and reported to the police. He said to the company, if you don't pay X, Y and Z, I'm going to report you. Yeah. Um, the company hadn't revealed that the he was a she, and they said, you know, we're 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 not we don't we don't have any have any evidence of this. So it was reported to the police. So I ended up being investigated internally and by the police for um, an accident that I didn't cause for someone who was trying to take advantage of the system and thought that, hey, it's a big company, I can get I can get money out of them. No, so yeah, it wasn't with, even with, without actually thinking about I have the potential to ruin someone's life. And so so for so for me, if I had actually been found at fault, I could have gone to jail for that. Yeah. So this is um so this wasn't even orchestrated internally to give you grief. It was a totally independent person, external, that happened to pick your truck. Yeah, and uh, just when I thought that it couldn't have gotten any worse internally, I cop I cop the external got the, yeah. you know, the, the external uh, external um, pressure as well. So I mean, you've described this pretty well already, but um, do you want to give what like your twenty year old Fleur at that stage? You haven't got the depth of training that you've got now. What was going on for you? What you know? What was what was happening for you in your own head? What was happening for you when you went home to try and sleep? And what was happening for you the next day when you had to go back into this environment? And how how did that kind of escalate? Did it escalate or? So um, for most of that first year of work, I didn't sleep, mm. which pro probably wouldn't, wouldn't surprise you at all. And I was, you could also say that um, I was never completely clocked off the job as well. Because um, before I went into whatever meeting or or um, you know daily daily tasks that I needed to do, I was having to strategize and think about the ways that I could minimize interacting with um, people that mm. that you know that I knew would be bullying me. At the end of the day, I was replaying in my mind the things that hadn't gone well and what I needed to mitigate wow. Jesus. and at night I was so wired that I wasn't able to sleep yeah. and so I was just in this like constant stage stage of yeah wired tired exhausted but so far beyond the exhaustion phase that I was just like perma permanently switched off and permanently in a hypervigilant state wow. 
so so in terms of learning all these you know strategies over the the course of the last you know 20 20 years or so a lot of that has been around you know retraining myself out of fight and flight retraining myself out of the stress response um learning strategies and putting in place you know routines that enable me to depersonalize things that are actually when they're levied at you they're extremely personal but to actually understand taken a long time to learn this that it's not mm, actually about mm. you it's generally you know about someone else projecting onto you yeah but um you know it's it's take, taken a long time to get there so i mean i'm in totally in your hands here and, I, and i've always uh, i think we had dinner one night um oh, six months eight months ago and you kind of hinted at this a little bit and, and you hinted it in your book and you're just ex- giving a, a, a fairly detailed explanation now did did this experience break you at that time and 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 how did you you i'm in your hands what what was the outcome of this horrible work environment so the experience didn't break me and um i know you spoke to my parents at uh, at uh, at our recent uh, book launch and office warming celebration party and a number of people asked my parents, um, you know, what was Fleur, you know, like as, you know, a little girl or what was Fleur like when she was younger? And to a T, almost everyone came back to me and said that your defining characteristic when you were younger was that you were determined. Mm. And so when I was um, faced with all of these horrible scenarios and and, and situations, I was determined not to let it best me. Mm. But I was also determined to figure out how I could be the most successful I could possibly be in that particular role so that I could get out of it as fast yeah. as possible. Yeah. And so, so an exit, exit strategy. Yeah. So it's so a lot of a lot of my um a lot of my career trajectory has actually been about working hard and overachieving so that I'm not publicly humiliated by the people that want to pull me down but also to enable me to fast track out of out of a role and hopefully with the opportunity to you know to be able to do something better so this becomes interesting now when i when i read your book um and what i know about you now how long did this self-perpetuating overachieving go till it couldn't go any longer or did Uh, it keep on going so with the, the the story that I shared uh, about supporting um, all of my people, as well as the business through the global financial crisis, that took three years of intense effort and extremely long hours to make sure the people were okay and that the business was okay. And then when we got through it, um, literally, mind, body and soul shut down. So I experienced the worst case of um, burnout in my career trajectory to that perspective. How old are you then? How old are you then? Oh, goodness. 30s. Okay. So so it's 10 years essentially of what you've... Yeah, keep going. And and I was going to say, and it took me... It took me 18 months of a whole raft of different doctors and medical professionals and psychologists to put myself back together again. So at the end of that, I actually resigned. And that was when the, I guess, the the roots of starting my own business um, 
really started to to be sown mm -hmm. um, because I was at this point where I went, you know what, I've actually got nothing left to prove. I've achieved, you know, I've, yeah. I've achieved chief CEO. I have navigated a company through the GFC. I've returned the highest profit in the, the group of companies. Um, and I actually don't have anything else that I need to prove to any of these people who have been trying to, to tempt, tempt, tear me down. But what I did realise was that continuing on doing the same kind of thing and going and doing a CEO role somewhere else or in a bigger role was not going to help me fix my my health and mm. to support me, I guess, in terms of like learning the strategies to do that. Yeah. So it was like eight, yeah, eighteen months of being extremely unwell and then starting to to research. That's also when I went back to university and did the masters in coaching psychology. Yeah. And during yeah. that period of time was also when I started um, started working on my yoga therapy and different like yoga teacher training qualifications mm. for, for different things. Yeah. Okay. So do you want to talk us through like what seems to be missing? And I just, I want to just uh, tease it out a little bit because every guest on this show kind of has a, has a similar moment. Um, but some guests do it get through it on their own. Some guests get through it with medical support, their medical support team, or some guests get through it with a combination of the medical support team and friends and colleagues. So how, like you're you're in a low spot, definitely, um, which has probably been coming for a while with this overachieving um, to, get, to get out, to, to prove, prove yourself. Um, how do you, once it starts to fall apart and you're in that 18 month hiatus um, of putting yourself back together again, are you on your own? Uh, how do you piece yourself back together again? Uh, so I was, I was on my own and during, during, during the time where I was reevaluating what career and work looked like and also figuring out what I needed to do from a health perspective and also what I needed to do from a, a happiness perspective. Um, I also experienced a, a marriage breakdown. My um, then husband at the time was extremely financially conscious and was not okay with me leaving oh, yeah. expensive yeah. CEO role and taking time out and started mucking up and putting pressure on me at home, um, you know, to, you know, to, to continue and, and find, find a way to, to continue. Yeah. So the, yeah, the, um, you know, the, the short answer to that is I had to figure it out on my own. And so, and for me to be well and for me to be safe and healthy again, and to be happy, it involved leaving the, leaving the, the corporate but also but also leave, leaving the marriage Ouch. so um Ouch. yeah I, so it's a tough I, 18 months I, w I went through the, the rebuilding process um on my own and spent a lot of time going through different types of um health tests blood tests and all the rest of it I went through a whole bunch of medical professionals back in those days burnout actually hadn't was, wasn't a term that had been really invented yet mm. it was only in only in um I think it was like 20 20 
it was either 2017 or 20, 2019 that the World Health Organization actually like defined it. Mm. So um, I, li- I like to like to say to people that I was an early adopter of, of burnout. But one of the the challenges being with being an early adopter of, of burnout is is not many medical professionals knew what to do about it. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time scouring the the medical and the alternative therapies. Um, yeah. you know, diff- different different professions to find a combination of things that would, would work for me in terms of putting myself back together again. You want to, um, so, um, having my background as a, you know, in the 40-year the veteran of the police and I see a lot of um, PTSD experiences and the recovery process and everything that kind of goes with it, do you want to explain to our listeners some of the things that were going on for you physically that you were trying to get answers for that, and I think your book hints at this, um, you were, you might have been a case study, but you're kind of describing yourself. You had all these medical appointments and was there an outcome uh, or you, there was just your arm yeah. and, and they couldn't figure gen, it out? Gen, generally not. Yeah. So um, one of the things I was getting frustrated about was continuously doing blood tests and the blood tests coming back and saying that I was in the normal range. And it's like, mm. well, what I'm feeling is not normal. So um, what were you feeling? Do you, do you want to go um, into that so people um, know what this feel? No, because no, you're, you're, you're kind of describing, I think, the conditions of, of 2020 on, aren't you really? Um, the, in the, for people, like, mm. this is where your book's so relevant and what you do is so relevant. Even though your book is such a good resource, people are still doing it. <laughs> people are still doing the the cause. Yeah. So, so you yeah, want to describe absolutely. what was going on for you? Yeah. So, so some of the signs that I had, and some of the signs that are going to be, you know, helpful for for people to to um, to note down is when you um, experience, in particular, emotional swings. And so, for me, I would get teary at the drop of a hat. I would get upset over things I usually wouldn't um, be bothered by. Mm. Um, I would lose my temper really quickly. Yeah. Um, Which is, get, um, yeah, knowing you really, now, I can't see it. <laughs> so, no, yeah. really, really, really frustrated um, and, um, you know, irritated, ir- irritated um, by people who kept, who kept on badgering me over things. So it's definitely, definitely an emotional roller coaster. Also, at the same time, I was so exhausted, I was finding it difficult to get any kind of, find any kind of um, energy or passion or care for a lot of the important things going on in, on in my life. Um, hopefully, uh, you've passion um, care, picked up from this podcast. I'm a person that does... Um, you know, feel passionately about doing the right things about people and I care very, very deeply about making a change. And um, I completely flatlined on passion and, and care for things that, you know, I'd been advocating for, for for a long time. And then on a physical perspective, I wasn't sleeping, but I was continuously exhausted. I was, um, oh, I got to the stage where I was having five or six coffees a day just to, to, to get myself um, through. I was loading up on sugar, so I was also putting on on weight. Um, so I put on, oh, goodness, maybe five to ten kilos of, of weight during that, that period of time. I yeah. had um, stomach cramps. I also had a lot of allergies, so my eczema was perfect, permanently flared. Um, I was catching every single bug that went around. It felt like that 
you know, just as I was getting to the tail end of a cold or a flu, I was catching the next round. So I was yeah. continu con continuously sick, continuously inflamed in terms of my um, allergies. And yeah, pains, cramps, stomach cramps, all, you know, there, there was a whole there's a whole whole plethora of stuff mm. but of course you know I'm, I'm explaining to you quite quite severe burnout um for those of people who are sort of like on the way to 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 burnout um you know the signs are there if, if if you look for them and i think i think we'll often find that so like the tiredness signs and the emotional swings, swings so that yeah. lack lack of lack of ability to regulate your emotions um, you know, versus how you usually would. So we're talking about changes here. Are uh, generally going to be those first early warning signs that some, something's out of whack. Yeah. So, so that's pretty good description. So when um, <clears throat> you know that you're you're gone um, after the GFC three years of doing the right thing by your people, and you know there's nothing left in the tank for you, um, and then you get divorced as well. Where did, did what? How did you get through that? If you were on your own, did you did you have psych, like a psych, like a mental health team support, or how did you get through that? Because it sounds like everything's no. been on your own. <laughs> so you say it's, um, it's, so, it's so incredible. I, I eventually managed to um, find myself a really good integrated medical doctor. So a GP that also was interested in things like. Um, like um, gut disorders and gut inflammations. And so she was actually able to give me um, some really good tests and we started working out together what I needed to do to rebalance my physiology and, and biology. And she also was one of those doctors that's not, here's your seven-minute allotment. Mm. I'd have um, each appointment with her was anywhere between half an hour and an hour. And so I actually had the opportunity to talk through her and she was interested in the emotional patterns that went with the, 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 the physical patterns. I had tried a number of psychologists. I just hadn't come across any that yeah. either I yeah. related to or had any kind of experience or knowledge or could even relate or empathise with where I'd come from and, and what I'd done. So, yeah. so it's not that I didn't have mental health support um, because I wasn't interested or wasn't trying. I was yeah. trying. I just, yeah. I just, I just, I just didn't find it. And so, um, yeah, my most, most pal, pal, you know, potent um, path was with my integrated medical doctor, and then learning alternative Eastern strategies through that yoga therapy training that I was talking about. Okay. So that the yoga therapy training was very much where I learnt those mental and emotional um, regulation strategies. Regulations for yourself. Yeah. Mm. Okay. With um, what was I going to ask then? You're a high-performing CEO trying to do the right thing by your people through the the global financial crisis for a three-year period. I've had another guest on the show that talks about the loneliness of a CEO. Did you? Was there anyone you could reach out to during that three-year period or was it totally on your own? And and if you could revisit it, how would you get through it? Um, so from a company perspective, I was also on my own. Mm. So the um, outgoing managing director, even though he'd retired, 
um, was still on the board and he made it very clear to me that it was in his best interest to um, show the rest of the board that I was incompetent because his board uh, fee was an essential part of his retirement plan. Dear, oh dear. So I was it's actually... It's incredible. The, I know. The, the, so the, you, you, the, these people walk amongst us and you're telling them stories that happen. Hmm. It's incredible. Okay. Yeah. So so it was a, another one of those those cases and, you know, I think one of the reasons why, you know, he potentially in, endorsed my you know, my appointment was, oh, yeah, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a younger, you know, female, easily, easily managed and, and manipulated. And um, when it became clear that I didn't accept the role to be, you know, his, his, his puppet, that I was accepting the role to, to make something of it on, on my own, then, um, you know, the, the, um, yeah, the, yeah, the, 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 the bullying and the, and the undermining, you know, ramped up, and of course, going through that through the GFC with everything going on, I had the combination of trying to do the right thing by the people in the company, but but also um, trying to make sure that this particular individual wasn't getting his hands on information and strategy, you know, ahead of me being able to implement it to you know then then be able to go and go and create create trouble with. Um, and the other challenge that I had. Uh, was so, a lot a lot of the management team that I had had been appointed by this particular individual and also had you know a fair degree of familiarity and, and loyalty to him um, to him as well. So it was yeah it was very much a character character yeah, strength dear, ca dear, character dear. character strength kind of a kind of a kind of experience. And so you know what I what I you know do now is. Um, you know, very much around having conversations with people that say that, you know, not only is it, you know, a right, uh, you know, not only is it, is it a right to have, but it's a regulatory, it's regulatory requirement for psychological safety at work and to be expect to be supported by people. It's mm. not okay to be bullied. It's not okay um, to be treated poorly because, you know, you're different. It's not okay to be ridiculed because you need help on something. And so... Yeah, a lot of lot of lot of where 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 I come from is very much you know come coming from that place. Wow. Of, yeah. you, you you don't you don't get the best out of people by treating them the worst. Yeah, no, no, that's um your stories, and I and I appreciate because your your book kind of gives your both books give you the the kind of how to na navigate safely, but I think your story shows what I really love about how honest you've been in this interview is the story shows how bad it can get um, and you push, you pieced yourself back together, which is a credit to you that you, and, and then you identified that you wanted to do your own business. So we'll, we'll get to that. But I think you just, um, and I'm probably going off track a little bit here, but you just touched on nowadays in Australia, and I think it only happened last year or, or the year before that, where, where it's legislated at a, a federal and state level about psychosocial safety in the workplace. Um, it's and, only, only this year, Alan. Yeah, I, yeah. April That's right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah you're right. Yep. Yeah. Um, but the frightening thing about, you know, I, I'm curious about a comment, uh, like an opinion, maybe a comment, like it's legislated now, but, but the behaviours that you described that happened to you as a 30-year-old are still happening in workplaces today. So how do you uh, how do you how do you um, and, and we'll get we'll go we'll go from here into into you how you formed your business but how do you advise 
someone now as a as their coach, as their well-being coach, as their leadership coach, when you hear a story that's your story happening today? How do you how do you help people today with that story? I think one of the biggest challenges that we have with um, psychosocial hazards is it's this like lovely tech technical kind of academic -y, regulatory kind of term and most people don't actually understand what mm. it is and, and mm. what it means and I I honestly believe that most leaders don't actually understand what psychosocial hazards are how it applies to them and actually what it looks like you know real time in, in in real life and because the reality is is a lot of the everyday things that leaders are engaged in are potential issues and contributors to psychosocial harm yeah, so yeah, we're thinking yeah. about things like um people with excessive workloads people who are lacking job clarity around what they should be doing and what a good job looks like um, people who are experiencing chronic levels of stress related to something to do with job, uh, conflict within teams where, you know, you've got people on the inner and the outer or conflict within teams where you've got people who have had a, you know, maybe they've had a, a falling out or a difference of opinion and are treating each other badly as a result of that. All of these different things are part of what's always made up the working landscape mm. and once upon a time not that long ago <laughs> less than less than less than sort of like seven or eight months months ago you know there was this um you know Im implicit assumption that you know leaders would sort of like share what needed to be done and then it's up to everybody else to kind of like you know manage all of like the, the the challenges, whether it be to our own coping skills through to resolving conflict with our team members ourselves. Yeah. And so one of the things that's really important to understand now, and I've um, actually just started speaking to a number of my um, clients. I've got a psychosocial hazards for leaders um, training course specifically um, around what are the signs that we need to look out for that are indicating that some of these things might be going off the rails and what mm. are some of pre some preventative um, and I guess proactive strategies that leaders can be taking to mitigate stress or workload demands or team conflict getting getting out of hand to you know, the point where it is causing psychological harm or injury to someone. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges around that, um, Alan, is there's a whole bunch of technical regulatory language that's out there. Yeah. Um, and believe you me, I've been reading everything I can get on in this area and yeah. there's very, very little around what does this mean in plain language and yeah. what does it actually look like day to day <clears throat> and what are the expectations around that you'll do something. So all the legislation says it's expected now that managers will mitigate and prevent and um, support when these things get out of hand, but nothing around what that looks like. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm um, I'm involved in similar stuff myself, so I mm. totally understand what you mean. And it's um, if you get someone to talk about it, most of them what they'll say is, uh, "What does it mean? What's because it's a horrible, yeah. it's a exactly horrible word. It's a horrible term. Psychosocial. Yeah. I mean, it, it's 
once you know what it means, you know, understand, but it could mean anything to anyone that's never heard it before. So um, very, very good. So I was just curious about, so your, your, um, the need for your expertise is never going away soon because of, because even though it's legislated, the world hasn't even started to understand what it even means yet. So it's um it's good stuff. So let's go back. Let's rewind the clock. You're actually you're coming out the of the other eighteen months of your recovery from your CEO stint uh, um, after the GFC, and you've realised that. I don't want to be a CEO anymore. I want to run, I want to run my own business. So do you want to, like, you're, you're kind of, you're very, it's a very inspiring story as well. How, what, what happens next in this story? How, how does, because you're divorced, you're, you're putting yourself back together, but now you're going to start a company that helps everyone around you. And then I'm starting all over again on my own. Yeah. 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 Um, the, 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 the driver very much, was twofold. One was that no one should ever have to go through what I did. Mm. And the second one was that these kind of conversations that burning people out and bullying people at work was not okay, back in those days, is not okay. And is not an acceptable price for for success. And so mm. very much had that strong driver around the belief that the way that we work is broken. And if we continue doing that, we're going to break the world of work. And interestingly enough, we're still continuing to do it, not quite as mm. bad as, as back mm. then. But, um, you know, if I parallel it, you know, to now, we had some really great recognition from companies around the need to better support staff with stress and change and uncertainty through through COVID. Mm. So very, very, and we also had government support, financial and recognition and, and policies to support people affected by job losses um, during, yeah. during COVID, which was very, very different to the response to GFC. Mm. But one of the things that's really concerning me now is with this economic uncertainty, um, the conversations that are, you know, starting to happen with with companies is like, okay, well, you know, COVID's done, now we need to get back to business. You know, mm. now we need to um, start fixing things economically. And so a lot of things that um, I'm hearing from people is um, is is very much along the lines of, you know, the, the, the time for this sort of like touchy-feely, like, you know, mental health and stress management support is done. The mm. rubber's hit the rubber's hitting the road now. We've got we've got financial results or we've got business results or we've got competitive pressures that we now now need to deal with. Yeah. And so one of the things that's um, you know, that um, you know, was my driver in terms of, you know, do you know, starting up my own business was back in back when I started, it was around providing the business case for why it made sense for businesses to treat people well yep. at work. And the interesting thing is is that there's this recognition that now that mental health and well-being of people is important, but there's this real sense that, but it's not a priority at the moment. Yeah. And so the absolute foundations of of you know this business and what I'm what I'm doing and how I'm supporting people is to show them that you can have both health and well-being as well as high performance and results. And so 
both fortunately for me and unfortunately for the world, um, there is still a massive amount of oh, totally. still, still, still uh, to be done. So how do you, um, like, I, do you want to talk about, I mean, this is your story, but, and we're, but where we're going is quite, we could discuss it all day, but um, do you want to talk about maybe some of the challenges initially of getting the, like not normally when you try and set up a business, it's not all smooth sailing. Was there um, was there times where you thought this is not going to work, or is there times where you've uh, where like your you said your the overwhelming description of your parents was that you're a very determined person? Um, did you what roadblocks did you did you get over to actually make the the Blueberry Institute and this concept of well-being and high performance? Um, a partner thing how did, how did you it was there times when that was challenged and you got through it um so initially um initially where where um my earlier success came from was more in the field of leadership development programs emerging leadership programs and executive coaching yeah which was much more performance related. So mm. because of my my background and the various things that I achieved in my um, corporate career. Yeah. So financially, you know, in, in terms of commercial results, um, you know, my background is very strong in, achieve, in achieving key financial success so profit things like sales things like market mm. share, share and so forth and so where my early my early um my early approaches for work came from came from people wanting um you know wanting help with their organization or with their their leaders to to learn some of those skills and and, yeah. and, and those successes and so the well-being part of it was very much a, um around you know some of the strategies that I was giving people, as opposed to the the, the core core proposition. I was speaking with everyone about the importance of resilience and well-being at work, but I was continuously being being told, "Yep, yeah, well-being, you know, well-being, Fleur, that's great, but it's a nice to have. It's not a necessary. Mm. Or well-being, that's lovely, but you know, we don't we don't budget for well-being. We budget mm. for 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 performance. And so in those early days. Um, Part of where the Blueberry Institute has evolved from is I went, okay, so I need to go and prove the business case that wellbeing is good for performance. Mm. And um, so I worked with a construction company. Mm -hmm. And as part of a culture transformation program, we put in a quite substantial module where we trained everyone across the organisation in personal wellbeing and resilience skills. And we set it up, and I set it up in conjunction with Melbourne University to track it and measure using it both academic measures as well as business measures. Yeah. And after a 13-month period, we demonstrated an improvement in when I say people's well-being in terms of in terms of well-being academic um, well-being academic measures we demonstrated in, in improvements in that mm. when it came to um, organizational engagement so we had 
more engaged employees. Absenteeism was down. Mm. Turnover was um, down. Mm. And we also had a significant reduction in serious safety incidents. At the same time, that revenue went up, profit went up, and market share held. And so I was then able to take the business case to show people tangibly that investing in wellbeing was also an investment in business. And that's that's when that's that's really when I started to get a lot more traction in more specific ways of working when it came to excellent train, train, train um, um, lead, leaders and leadership teams in and what a what a um, ways of working what a beautiful uh like the construction industry is pretty pretty what's the descriptor for that it's pretty could be pretty basic in its um in its way it gets an outcome sometimes <laughs> you can like we all know the stories on the on the work site of um will make me kind of you know all, yeah. all that kind of uh, bravado that goes on so yeah it was it was it was a great company to to do this with um good, good on you because when when i um when i was you know sharing sharing the case study results people would come back and go oh yeah but that's probably you know a different company you know we're, we're more difficult and i'm kind of like going well it was a male oriented yeah. company with both white collar and blue collar in the construction industry you're really trying to tell me that your company is more difficult than something yes like there's nothing there's nothing more <laughs> the, like, e no. <laughs> the, the egos that go on between trades and different owners and suppliers and subcontractors is massive so that's it's a pretty good case study so that's a really good example thank you for that uh, and one of the things and I keep on the. We just go so many places, but you, in your answer to that, I loved, I loved where you went with one of your indicators that you said, um, employee engagement, absenteeism, turnover, and reduction of safety incidents were your key measures. Yeah. Um, and it'd be curious to know. Be curious in what you're talking about. How you said it. You know, we've only been in this legislative place for psychosocial since April 2023, if the measures around it were those ones, um, do you have a problem with engagement? Do you have a problem with absenteeism? Do you have a problem with turnover? Um, and if businesses were managed by that, that's wellbeing, isn't it? Mm. Wellbeing indicators. So it's it, it's interesting. Um, well, they're the hard wellbeing indicators as opposed to yeah, them often being classified as soft wellbeing indicators, right? Yes, yeah. And I, I, I wonder, can, you know, your kind of at the forefront of this with with some academic um, evidence of it behind back, backing you up. Can you see a world where companies and organisations and workplaces will be measured by those four things that you said, engagement, absenteeism, turnover and safety incidents? We're getting closer. OK, it's um, really so. So. A really good story for because the, the the books don't really hand go to where how you've done this. So, so when so you're you're having all these companies say, oh, well, we know wellbeing's a, a thing, but we don't want it to be our thing. Then you prove it um, empirically that it is a thing, a value thing to have. When does when do the books when is it is it is, does the business explode into the wellbeing? And then your books happen, or do you write the books and then it explodes? 
uh, the business explodes and then the books come out of it because basically the the books are, I guess you know, sharing a share are sharing the the strategies um, that I'm teaching people in my programs that resonate most and that work, you know, that 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 have worked. So um, really, the acknowledgement of mental health and well-being, and sorry, mental health and well-being as something that business needed to address really flipped from a nice to have to a necessary or started to flip from a nice to have to a necessary when we had our bushfire summer. Oh, yeah. And um, I think it was the the first of the first of January or the first week in January, I had a phone call from Woolworths um, requesting That's urgent twenty. Yeah. Ur no. Urgent urgent mental health first aid training for um, managers across a number of their operations sites particularly in some of our you know particularly for some supporting some of our regional areas where mm. people were extremely you know traumatized and and not not coping with the the devastation of you know bushfires ruining not just personal property but you know communities and and, and so forth yeah um and it really just um you know continued to um, exponentially grow from there when when COVID when COVID hit, mm. and so the strategies in resilience recipes or the the personal person which I call the the personal wellbeing guidebook mm. came out of yeah two a good two years worth of conversations scaffolding people either in one on one coaching sessions or broadly across organisations in my resilience, stress management and wellbeing um, support training programs. So a very, very small, small subset. And then leading wellbeing has come out of the last couple of years of mental health conversation skills trainers for leaders that I'm doing, but also I'm a mental health first aid instructor. So I think over the course of the last three, three years, I've done something now like 50 mental health first aid courses and the quest a lot of the questions that I'm answering in leading wellbeing are questions that people are asking me in mental health first aid around, you know, how do I support my team member with this that aren't covered in a mental health first aid certificate course. Yeah. Yeah, it's they're they're separate. That's very very do you want to um because we're in, we're kind of in the core of it now. You give it a hint, the business explodes and it really explodes from that that first you know the first of January 2020 when the when New South Wales in particular but it was all, all across Australia the you know the the bushfires who was who were some of the big name business companies that sought out Fleur Hazelwood then and and then you have two years of experience to make uh, resilience recipes um so. Yeah, during um, well, I I do have to say I'm I'm very very fortunate in that um, two of my very very first companies that I started working with um, were still very strong clients during that particular period of time. So not only had we demonstrated the business case, but they'd seen the, the, the business case for the for themselves. And so um 
you know, my, you know, really big shout out to ITW Construction and then mm. in a completely different space, the Department of Veterans Affairs, who continued to build on the good, I guess, like cultural and development, people development work that we were doing. And as the need for different scaffolding arised, had the had the appetite and the foresight to go with me on the journey and say, hey, this is what people are saying, then, you know, let's let let's do something and let's 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 support them in, in, in doing something. Mm. But I'm very fortunate in that um, I'm working with organizations across a whole bunch of a whole bunch of diff- different industries. Um, Wink, who are office supplies and logistics and, and, yeah. and warehousing. We've trained all of their Big shout out to them. All of their um, people managers get trained in mental health mastery skills, as just a, a matter of course and a, and a core core part of their core part of their their work. Um, yeah, there's there's sort of like three probably three three three, three 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 significant e- examples. You're very. I'm sure you're very modest because I think that I think they're your websites and your maybe your book's got a lot more names than that. But I, I, I'm not going to pressure because that's who you are. You're just a, a very under underspoken person about just what you are delivering, and I'll, and I'll, and it's beautiful to to see what you are delivering and how people are taking this this well-being issue up up in our workforces in Australia. So hats off to you that you're actually doing that because there's still, I, I know, and you probably know, there's so many organisations that aren't that aren't on board yet um, yep. and, you, and using the old methods that are hurting people. So let's let's move on because I'm, I'm conscious of, um, of time now. But <clears throat> so you've written two books uh, and, and they're both outstanding books. I, I, I myself, you know, all, my my book, my own personal book called The Courage to Lead, is a story about how I got it wrong as a leader. And I wish I'd had, as because as I was writing one of my chapters in my book, I wish I'd had resilience recipes when I was going through my hard times um, as a leader. Because if I'd have known what your resilience recipes has in it, I would, probably wouldn't have had. I wouldn't have stubbed my toe as bad as I did. So it's a and I, and I referenced that book in the, in the back of my book. Because uh, it is a it is a great yarn. So, and this is second book, the leading wellbeing is is equally as as resourceful um, for any leader in in today's workforce. But let's ask. Let me ask you this question: What did you learn about yourself in writing both those books? <laughs> that I don't actually like writing books. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, no, but yeah, one of, one of the things that I discovered is um, I my happy place is very much as a speaker and a facilitator and having a dialogue with people, whereas a book, even though the book came out of questions from people in my, my workshops and, and programs, it felt like it was very much this one-way delivery of, 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 inf- of information. And um, yeah, one of the things that I, I discovered was just how much I value the honesty and vulnerability and transparency I have with people in my workshops who are um, prepared to ask the the, the, the curly curly questions and mm. genuinely, you know, want to know how how to do things better. So very very you know fortunate um, in you know now developing a 
a great you know network of people that you know have been been in my presentations or or, or workshops that will still call me and say hey Fleur I'm, I'm struggling with this what what should I do yeah. and each time I get one of those questions it it goes you know into into my my list of list of list of questions that um, I want to find an, an answer for, which will then end up being tested in my programs and, and workshops. And so what's in yeah, what's in leading wellbeing as well is, you know, what are the what are the core questions that, you know, that people want? What are the core questions that um, people aren't getting, you know, getting the information that they they need on? And so for me, the book's very much an act of service as opposed to a labor of love. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm, well, I'm a, I'm a speaker. I'm much happier speaking things through as opposed to yeah. write, writing things down by myself. I, I must agree. The the workshop angle and where people give you give you themselves, they trust you with their content. It's probably nothing better, really, uh, than, than that than that environment. You said so. I, I think I remember when we had dinner together. You were honest enough to say that um, even though we've got this beautiful person in front of us that. Um, that is a master of all well-being and everything. The, the the book writing journey and the the publication journey and your business journey can sometimes still be challenging. Do you want to let people in in that space a little bit that that it's all right to have a bad day or? or, or... Oh, absolutely. So, um, one of the things I talk about with healthy high performance is that when you have healthy high performance, it doesn't mean that you are always fantastic you're always in perfect physical health you're always in perfect mental health what healthy high performance means is that you are recognizing what your health patterns are or stress patterns are and the things that you need and when you're having you know a not so great day that you take some pressure off yourself and let you have let yourself have a softer day when you're struggling with something or when you're not coping with something that you recognise that and you put your hand up and say, actually, I need some help here. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I'm not this, like, wonderful, perfect, you know, human machine that has, like, stress and pressure and um, competing demands and mental health absolutely perfect. I am this person who recognises that I'm a perfectly imperfect person and is getting a bit better at recognising the signs earlier when the wheels are about to fall off yeah. and, um, you know, now does, you know, something something about it. But, yeah, no, um, I, I get all the time, particularly in my wellbeing resilience workshops, they're going, oh, wow, you know, you are such an expert in resilience. And I'm going, yeah, I am an expert <laughs> in resilience because I'm personally bad at it and yeah, yeah. I've learned all these strategies to put myself together. So this is a very, you know, there's a very, you know, strong depth of lived experience behind you know what what what's here and you know what yeah. what what's important do you want to give a quick example of in between say book one and book two where you did have to look after your own resilience you don't have to but um uh <laughs> do you want it uh can you go is there an example where you can see where you can remember oh that was a tough day well i can probably uh, I could probably talk a, a little bit more now about looking after after my own wellbeing. Probably less between resilience recipes and leading wellbeing, but more around post leading wellbeing launch now. So, I've spent I think the last ten weeks, um, you know, continuing to to run the business, launch the book, um, 
super fortunate that um, been picked up. I think I've like written 30 articles for a number of different magazines wow, and newspapers wow, across wow. the country. Every article takes around four hours. Um, done some amazing keynote, keynote yeah. conferences and, and presentations and yeah, podcasts and radio interviews and, and things like this. And it's all had to be filled in around the cracks. So yeah. I've just completed close to eight weeks of um, yeah, probably 70 to 80 hour weeks yeah and uh so the wheels did certainly feel like they were starting to fall off a couple of weeks ago and um so this last three weeks um back and instead of doing half an hour of yoga a day i'm doing an hour's worth of yoga a day instead of even just doing it like a like an eight to five or whatever at work i've been doing 10 until three o'clock days i haven't worked for the last and haven't done any kind of like work for the last um, three weekends. And not only have I not worked, but I've been like out of the house. I've been, you know, walking and doing long walks on the beach and catching up and socialising with friends um, because I realised that there's just like nothing, nothing left in, in the tank and I needed the time to to recharge before before head, heading back into it. And, and I know from my own patterns, and um, this is where I think many people come un, unstuck when they're starting to notice the signs of, of burnout is that you know we're kidding ourselves if we think that you know just a week or two weeks off or holiday is is going to is going to going to shift that and so i've scaled back and reprioritized and reorganized um quite a bit over the next um six weeks on a daily basis not just taking time out for for holidays to make sure that sort of like those um the screws that are starting to become a little bit looser are being being tightened tightened back up again well done, uh, and I. Um, that's a really honest and current answer about how to how to manage. Very current. Yeah, uh, yeah, because it's. Uh, I imagine it's very intoxicating to have all those people wanting articles, to have people want those keynote speak speeches. So you you've got to ride the wave. Um, that's that's really honest of you. Well, last question. It's been a one. I've really. I, I could talk to you for hours, really. But um, last question because it's been a wonderful interview with you. If someone was going to start out in a leadership journey now, and they and they thought they wanted to be like Fleur, um, what would Fleur Fleur's tips for wisdom be? Either one, two, or three tips of wisdom if they were if they were, if they are intending to go out on the journey now as a well-being, high-performance leader. The first tip that comes out of my journey is to not be in a hurry. So one of the things um, that characterised my journey, and probably because I did <clears throat> face a lot of adversity, is I spent a lot of time trying to get out of roles as opposed to enjoying the good things in the roles and collecting the experiences along the way. So I had a, a burning reason to be in a hurry and to have such a speedy career trajectory mm -hmm. or a number of, number of reasons. But one of the things that I really recommend people to do is to not spend so much time with their eyes towards the next prize that they're not actually taking the time to really enjoy the role that they're in and to enjoy the connections and the achievements and, and the learnings and, and so forth along the way. Yeah. My, my second tip would be you do not have to do this on your own. And having done a lot of this on my own it's extremely exhausted and that is a recipe a rapid recipe to burnout mm. 
So second tip is, you know, look out mentor, look out and, you know, find find mentors. Go and find people within your organization or within your network who have done things that are similar to what what you want to to do and and uh, and learn and get some strategies and tips for them. When you're out of your depth on something, find someone that you know you can have a safe brainstorm with to bounce around options and 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 opportunities. Um, it'll be a lot less lonely, but it'll also mean that you'll have a lot greater confidence when you do do need to to back yourself on. On, mm. on particular things and then the third thing and this is my one of my uh, biggest hobby horses is that we need to treat well-being as an investment not as a reward so we have this current paradigm where we believe that we work hard and then we deserve well-being and happiness like afterwards it's something that we that we put in the cracks mm. But the reality is, is we're all working so hard, things are changing so much, we're never getting everything off our to-do lists. And if we treat wellbeing as a reward, we'll actually never get there. Mm. And part of our burnout paradigm is we've got this prioritisation that sort of like says work, results, um, tasks, commitments, all of these things comes first. Whereas what we actually need to be do is making a commitment to ourselves and putting our, our well-being first. And so when I talk about the business case for well-being, we need to look at it as our enabler for performance. And there's close to 10, 12 years worth of research now that shows that if we focus on our health, our well-being and our happiness first, all of these key performance indicators like productivity, our ability mm. to make sales, better relationships, creativity, innovation, all increase by anywhere between 9 and 27%. Yeah. So tip number three is to prioritise your health and well-being first and then work second. Well done. So you're a walking, talking example of how how to make it happen, essentially. Um, and at the same time, um, your lived experience and you've you've definitely shown a really good example of we're tougher than we think, because some of the things you've talked about would break most of us. So um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I really congratulate you from myself personally, and probably from the listeners. Um, what your what your business, what your book, what your what your team and you personally are achieving in the world. It's it's um it's commendable. So thank you for being on the show today it's been i i you never know which way they're going to go but you're you're you have this way about you that's calm considered uh it's it's um empirically backed up with all the, the data and you just you've walked the talk um and made and made you know beautiful examples out of it so i really congratulate on what you're achieving now and i and i hope to see more of it in the world because we need it we need more of it so thank you yeah, thank you, Alan. It's an absolute privilege to be able to share this like wellbeing and resilience, you know, journey journey with you and to, you know, recognize a, a like-minded soul who's also doing doing their bit to improve improve the world of work. Thank you. Well, how good was that? Fleur shared with us so many personal stories about what kind of shaped her into being a magnificent leader in the wellbeing space for 2023. I think we're lucky that we have her in our world and her two books, Resilience Recipes and Leading Wellbeing. Fleur left us with three leadership tips if you want to follow in Fleur's footsteps. The first one was, don't be in a hurry. 
enjoy the now, make the connections and build on your strengths. Number two, don't do it on your own. Look out for mentors and people who will support you when you need to ask some difficult questions. And three, treat wellbeing as an investment, not as a reward. Now then, if you like today's podcast, please leave a short review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to get your podcast from. These reviews are influential and I suggest that you share it with anyone you know who might be curious about being a better leader. Today's show was produced by Alan Sickard. It was edited by Alan Sickard and mixed by Alan Sickard. The theme music is by a musician called Savic and it is titled Legacy. I'm Alan Sickard. Thanks for listening.